Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. All engine running. Absolute genius. Get this. Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> this is the show where we bring you science. What that essentially means is discovery is questions, research, technology, unbelievable. Without further ado, this is The Naked Scientist. Hello, welcome to the programme where we bring you the latest breakthroughs in science, technology and medicine with me, Chris Smith. This week, AI-based facial recognition gets deployed in Ukraine, science pollution is linked to depression in teenagers and why sleeping with the light on might be a risk for developing diabetes. And as the energy crisis deepens and inflation heads towards 10%, we're asking, is nuclear energy back on the energy agenda, particularly since Rolls-Royce have just lodged plans with the industry regulator for a fleet of small nuclear reactors that come off a production line. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. Last month, we delved into the murky waters of facial recognition technology, asking how comfortable we feel trading our anonymity for our alleged safety. Little did we know then how quickly that question was going to become as pertinent as it now is for people in Ukraine. Reuters reported last week that American company Clearview AI, which describes itself as the world's largest facial network, came to them with news that it was offering its service free of charge to the Ukrainian government. In what capacity they intend to use the technology is so far not entirely clear, but Ukrainian government officials have hinted at using it to identify people of interest at military checkpoints and also deceased combatants. Clearview, however, is not without its critics. The response to this development has centred as much on the company furthering its own self-interest as it has on the potentially game-changing tool that's now being placed in the hands of the Ukrainian resistance. James Titko has this report. Clearview AI CEO Juan Ton Tat claims that his database contains over 10 billion images of faces, and its AI is even better at identifying people than you or I. I spoke with Michael Wooldridge, Professor of Computer Science at the University of Oxford, to understand how this technology works. Of the classic way that, that people focused on in the early days of trying to get software that could do facial recognition is to try to reduce your face to some kind of signature markers. You would measure, for example, the distance between your eyes and the triangle that your center of your eyes make with the tip of your nose and, and so on. And the idea is if you could find the right set of signature markers, then we get a unique signature of your face. And so when we see a picture of your face, Assuming we've seen it before, then we'll be able to recognise it. Um, But the second approach is just to use neural networks, which is one of the contemporary AI technologies of the day. And what neural networks are very good at is recognising patterns, recognising images. And so you can apply neural networks directly to that. And that technique is, is very, very popular and very successful these days. But to make it work, the software has to have seen your picture before. And in the case of neural networks, it typically has to see lots of examples in order to be able to recognize you in the future. But now, of course, we spend our lives providing social media with pictures of us very carefully labeled with, you know, my name and the name of my children and my wife's name and my friend's name and so on. And what we're doing is feeding social media algorithms and potentially other people that were not quite as comfortable uh, having access to these pictures with this training data to recognise our faces. Anyone who's used this facial recognition technology to unlock their phone, for example, knows it doesn't work every time, right? How accurate is this technology? It can't be immune to making mistakes. By no means is it immune to making mistakes. I mean, I think it's probably fair to say that current facial recognition technology in tests is basically better on average than people can. So once you've reached that point, I think you've reached a tipping point in terms of the quality of the technology. But as you say, it makes mistakes and it makes mistakes like all 
AI technologies in very unpredictable and weird ways. And this is one of the reasons why incautious use of this technology is something that we should all be concerned about. In light of my discussion with Michael and his warning to err on the side of caution in the use of AI facial recognition, I was keen to learn more about what kind of company Clearview was specifically. Ryan Mack is a tech reporter at the New York Times who's been following them for a while now. Well, the company claims, and I should stress that it, they're claiming here that they have about, I think, more than 10 billion photos in their database now. And why do you say um, that? Why do you say it's a claim rather than take them at face value? <laughs> I'd say that because in the course of my reporting, myself and others have found plenty of statements made by the company and its CEO, Juan Tontat, that don't end up panning out or are in some ways exaggerated. Perhaps the easiest one to point to is in their marketing materials to police early on in their in their company history, they were claiming that they had 100% accuracy in their facial recognition technology. Now, if you speak to any expert in the field, no one would ever guarantee 100% mm. accuracy. It's just a bad precedent and standard to set yourself to. There's plenty of other things that the company has claimed that haven't panned out. In any case, I mean, they've, they're claiming they have 10 billion photos in their database. They've also claimed in this that they have 2 billion off of, off of Vcontacta, which is Facebook uh, for Russia, the most popular social network in Russia. Ukrainian Vice Prime Minister Fedorov Mikhailo has spoken about the scenarios in which Clearview might be used, including identifying deceased Russian soldiers and prisoners of war and looking for missing persons. I wondered what might be in it for Clearview. Well, if you look at the history of this company and some of our reporting, their kind of MO is to get this technology out into as many hands as possible. And through these free trials, hopefully they prove themselves and then get these police departments or government organizations hooked into to paying a subscription fee every month or year. But also it's it's a positive story, I think, for them that their tool is being used in a war. I mean, it, you can see how the company would use that and take that as kind of a positive PR hit for them. They're already using it, for example, in in litigation. They're being sued in the US for violating certain privacy laws. And they've already inserted that into their case saying like, hey, actually, we're helping in Ukraine. We We are doing good here. Aside from Clearview's less than squeaky clean record, the use of AI facial recognition in wartime is a big point of concern. You know, if this software was used on checkpoints by people with guns to try to identify, you know, their origin and so on, that isn't a way that I would like this technology to be used. And of course, all of us desperately feel for everybody in in Ukraine, but it doesn't feel like a direction that we should be going. Worrying, isn't it? Michael Waldridge there and before him, Ryan Mack, they were speaking with James Titko. The harmful effects of air pollution have been reported many times and the stats speak for themselves. According to the World Health Organization, breathing bad air kills 7 million people per year. But apart from its impact on physical health, something that's not been looked at in detail is how pollution can also affect mental health, especially in younger people who might be more vulnerable to its effects. This is a shortcoming that Erica Manzak from the University of Denver set out to explore. She's found a strong link between teenage exposure to ozone, which is one constituent of air pollution, and the development of depression. The California Environmental Protection Agency regularly collects information from air quality monitors on things like ozone. I was able to take that data and essentially map it on to a study we were conducting that was looking at adolescence in San Francisco over a four-year period. And the two overlap, so you can then say, here's what the air's doing, here's what their mental health is doing. Exactly, yes. So we were able to take our participants' home addresses and identify which census tract they lived in, uh, and then take the state of California data and identify what are the average ambient ozone levels for that census tract. And what relationship emerged when you did this? We began following our adolescents right before the onset of puberty. So when most of our participants were somewhere between 9 and 13 years old, we then followed those same teenagers over the next approximately four years while each of them transitioned through puberty. And one of the things that we found was that Uh, There actually was not an association between mental health symptoms and ozone at baseline when the adolescents were uh, pre-pubertal. However, once 
they transitioned into puberty, we began seeing significant differences in mental health according to ozone level. Adolescents who were living in a census tract that had relatively higher levels of community ozone showed significant increases in depression over that four-year period, whereas adolescents who were living in communities that had relatively lower ozone exposure actually didn't show any significant changes in their depressive symptoms. Can you disentangle away the effect of environment? Because if I live in a really downhill place where my exposure to environmental pollution is likely to be high, but equally my exposure to a raft of other factors, crime, poor environment, poor outdoor space availability and so on, could well be playing a role. Can you get apart those two different aspects to this? Excellent question and something we were really concerned about trying to untangle since this is essentially a correlational study. So we can't firmly clarify whether our associations are causal. We can only look at whether these things go together. So within this study, we were able to also look at things like the number of families living below the poverty line, uh, socioeconomic status of individual households, as well as things like how many people in a community had finished a high school education and were able to show that our effects were not accounted for by some of these other community-level concerns. This would argue then that there is genuinely something about exposure to pollution and whether it's the ozone or something else that's there that you're not measuring but it's there at the (laughs) same time as ozone either could be possible couldn't it but how do you think this might be happening then what's the mechanism one of the things that we know from the research on physical health effects of ozone is that inhaling ozone can increase inflammation in our lungs but also systemic inflammation throughout our body and in turn we know that that systemic inflammation is associated with things such as asthma or cardiovascular disease. Um, However, in psychology, we're also recognizing that that those same patterns of systemic inflammation are also linked to depression and depressive symptoms. And so perhaps one of the biological pathways for our findings would be that inhaling ozone might increase inflammation in the body, which would then put adolescents at greater risk for depressive symptoms as they aged. Thought-provoking stuff, isn't it? Erica Manzak there. Sounds are very tiny pressure waves, and our ears are well adapted to picking them up. But what if there were other things that can also pick up on these tiny waves? Well, Evelina Wang spoke to MIT's Joel Fink to learn about fabrics that he's making that can tune in to sounds similarly to the way our ears do. In a way, fabrics contain the soundtrack of our lives. They are present from very soon after we're born to our last days. However, until now, until this work, that soundtrack was not accessible to us. What we set out to do is see if we could create an ear in a fabric. How did you design a fabric that could pick up on the soundtrack? So one thing was that when a sound wave hits a a plane or hits a fabric, very small waves are created, not that different from the waves that are in water. And so I'm really referring to those waves that are created in fabrics when we talk to each other. So right now, when you're listening to this podcast, they're very small waves that are generated in the fabrics you're wearing. Now, that gets me to another angle, which is the ear. Fibers are an important part of the detection of sound in our ears, both at the front end of hearing conversion of pressure to vibrations, and also on the back end of hearing, converting those waves into electrical signals. And so our work, our research uh, focuses on fibers. And we then said, wow, could we take those learnings from the ear and realize that same type of hearing uh, functionality, not now in a three-dimensional complex and delicate organ, but actually in a two-dimensional, flat, flexible, and durable, and maybe even machine washable fabric. In order to detect those waves, we needed to construct a fiber that moved with them. Think about a piece of seaweed in the ocean. Number two is we wanted a a fiber that not only moved with the waves, but also reported on them. And that defined the materials we used to make our fibers. 
And so there are two important materials there. One is a very highly flexible, rubbery type of material. Internal to the fiber is a piezoelectric. When that material is bent, it generates an electric signal. So you have this fiber embedded in your fabric, bending and causing electrical signals. How then did you gather that and turn it into a sound? Yeah, there are small little microwires that are running through the fiber that sort of conduct that signal to the edge of the fiber where it could be picked up. Those are just signals. So how far did you guys get on the processing end of the signals? Yeah, 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 yeah. So listen, our um, general approach to fabrics is framed by a vision that fabrics are going to be the next form of computation. So what we're saying is that the cell phone in your pocket is not going to look like the object in your pocket for much longer. It's going to look like a fabric. We think about that vision in terms of four elements. One is making fibers that have some very special properties and and functionality, like a microphone. But not only microphone, we've made fiber batteries, we've made digital fibers that store information that could run programs and so on. The second step in that vision is to combine those fibers into a fabric, which becomes a computer. We haven't gotten there, but we're getting closer. Step number three is to implement certain uh, programs to understand the context of those signals. And then finally, level four of this vision is provide services. They're apps. For example, if you have a, a hearing aid and you want your fabric to help you to function in a noisy environment, you're going to have an app for that. And if you're a pregnant woman and you want to listen to the fetal heartbeat, you're going to have an app for that. So we envision a world where the fabrics are going to just have, uh, are going to be capable of doing lots of different things for us. And that's obviously very different from what we're doing today. Well, that certainly sounds exciting to me. Yol Fink there, he was speaking with Evelina Wang, and you can read about that work reported this week in the journal Nature. From baffling British weather sideways spines of the vertebrae coming off here to looking at a cheetah from the inside out. Games making their way to the clinic and what to eat in your garden. Mm. The Naked Scientists In Short podcasts bring you a top-up of short, compelling science stories. Listen and download for free at nakedscientist.com slash short or subscribe to Naked Specials wherever you get your podcasts. It is The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith. Still to come, nuclear energy is back on the agenda. We'll hear how and why. Before that, though, are you a lights-on or a lights-off type person? I'm talking, of course, about when you go to sleep, because some people like to keep the light on overnight, but now new research suggests that's a bad idea, and instead, sleeping in the pitch black is better for your physical health. Naked Scientist Harry Lewis is, I'm told, a big fan of sleeping in total darkness. I certainly do, Chris. Oh, earbuds out. Blackout curtains open. Ready for the day. That's right. New research coordinated by Phyllis Z, Chief of Sleep Medicine in the Department of Neurology at Northwestern University, illuminates the health risks of sleeping with the lights on. I caught up with her, but when I did, she wasn't actually in Illinois. I am in Rome right now in Italy in the Eternal City. (laughs) It was the last place I went before the lockdown started to get put in place. It's quite a bright city, although you're covered with uh, historic relics. There's a lot of light around. There is a lot of light around in the centre of Rome. I noticed that, like you said, many of the ruins, many of the beautiful historic sites are also lit at night. But the street lamps uh, can be quite bright if they're right next to your window, especially when you're trying to sleep. And that's what we're coming on to, a bit of research that you've published recently discussing the effects on our health if, when you're sleeping, you're in the presence of lighting. What are your findings from this research? So what we found was even in very healthy, relatively young people, uh, having them sleep with their lights on uh, compared to if they were able to sleep in much, much dimmer light, which was like less than three lux, 
that there was a difference. Those who slept in the room light had a higher heart rate throughout the entire sleep period. And also the next morning, we challenged them with glucose, like you drank a bunch of glucose. And we found that the group that slept in the light condition, they have what we call insulin resistance. That means that to keep their blood levels of sugar, uh, glucose normal, the body had to secrete more insulin. And that is what we see in, for example, in people with uh, type 2 diabetes, it's a condition called insulin resistance. The tissue is less sensitive to the hormone insulin. So if we extrapolate this out, does that mean that if you were to sleep in the presence of light, not too much, but just a little bit, then this could result in somebody, I don't know, more likely to be diagnosed with diabetes? Well, we know that having insulin resistance uh, and also, I guess, increased heart rate during sleep, but normally your heart rate should be going down during sleep, could be a risk factor for the development of what we call cardiovascular or metabolic uh, disorders. There are other studies, and one that was published just last year, what they found was that those who were sleeping with lights on during the night, whether it was from a lamp, uh, whether from television, for example, or outside light, they were at higher risk for obesity. I feel like because we've grown into this era of light being all around us, there must be a lot of research into the effects of light on our health when we're sleeping. Is that the case? Am I right in that assumption? There's actually not as much research uh, of light while we're sleeping. Uh, Most of our research has focused on light in the evening, usually before we go to bed, right? You know, when you're awake, you're in bed and you're looking at your phone, you're looking at your light emitting devices. So it's really more in that pre-sleep period. I actually was surprised. I mean, I don't sleep with the lights on. But there was a survey done in Britain that somewhere about like 30 or 40 percent people sleep with their lights on. I mean, that's wow. a lot. Yeah. I'm, I mean, I've got, I've got a little radio next to my bed and it actually pumps out probably enough light for me to just about see, see around. So maybe I should be turning that off before I go to bed. Yeah. And especially the blue light. Your brain, for example, is going to be much more activated by short wavelength or blue-green type of light than it would be for, let's say, red or amber-colored light. So I say sometimes people have to have their lights on for safety reasons, but think about changing that color. Certainly if it's blue, to something that's a little more on the redder side. It can affect sleep. It can affect what you eat. So it's really another modifiable factor that we can use to improve our health. It's illuminating, isn't it? Phyllis C. She's at Northwestern University and the work they were discussing has just come out in the journal PNAS. So that's the importance of the dark, but what about getting the light right too? That's the thrust of a paper in PLOS Biology this week, which attempts to provide some expert guidance on what are appropriate light levels. And Tim Brown is one of the authors. I must say, Tim, I was quite surprised. I thought based on what, you know, same as what Phyllis was saying, that we we understood all this quite well and we had specifications for how much light we should provide in buildings and we should be exposed to in our homes, etc. Is that not the case then? You're quite right that, of course, we do have regulations for how much light we should have in, in our buildings. But these are all focused on providing enough light for us to be able to read, write, navigate safely. But they don't take into account effects of light on our body function. So regulating our body clock, which is a really important determinant of our health and well-being and effects on our alertness. The systems that regulate them in our body are quite different from the, the rod and cone cells in our eye that we rely on for vision. So in essence, then, we understood the science because researchers like yourselves have been talking about the importance of light exposure to feeling good, mood, waking up in the morning, setting your body clock, getting over jet lag, etc. They've been talking about that for decades. But are you saying that it just hasn't made its way into the sort of workplace psyche, domestic psyche in a way that really needs formalising and people need clear, unequivocal guidance? You're quite right that we've recognised this idea that we probably need to get more light during the daytime and less light in the evening for a long time. But the question has been, how do you put a number on that? And actually, it's not just a question of agreeing some numbers, but really it was agreeing the the proper way of measuring light. Because as I said, it's a different system. And so 
as you can imagine, when you experience light, what you're seeing is a range of different wavelengths. And those different wavelengths of light don't equally affect these systems. And so uh, in, in the report you just heard before, you heard about the importance of blue light. And that's because actually the, the, the biological system that regulates these things has a light sensitive protein that's particularly sensitive in that short wavelength blue part of the spectrum. And so there's been disagreements about exactly how we should measure that. So one of the things that came out of our report, which is a consensus agreement across many experts working in this field from across the world, was a new way of measuring light, which is relevant to this system, is the right way to go. So we were able to formulate our recommendations in this new measurement approach. Is one frustration that lighting technology has completely changed out of all recognition in the last two decades, where you said light bulb to someone in the year 2000, that means something completely different in the year 2022, where most lighting is now LED. We went through a phase of having compact fluorescence and people said they were disturbing their sleep. Are you able to make your regulations or your guidance kind of future-proof in that respect? Yes, because they're not tied to any particular lighting technology. Although what I would say is actually, although people have been worried about the idea that oh, there's a big blue component in LEDs, you have so much more control over LEDs to the extent where you can now tune the different wavelength bands within it to produce a light of a particular property. The upshot is that we can start thinking about having two different lights. They might visually appear identical. One would have a stronger effect on our body clock than the other just by tuning the mixture of wavelengths that are present. Is the elephant in the room, though, you might go to enormous lengths to advise on how to build better offices, better homes, better bedrooms that illuminate people in a way that's going to be more in sync with their physiology, the way their body's trying to work. But if they're sitting there deluging themselves in bright light from a screen, then they completely undo all the good work you're doing. So one thing I should first of all mention is that actually we now know that in increasing the amount of light we see in the daytime has some kind of a protective effect against the disruptive effects of light later on. So in that sense, making things better during the day helps. But I suspect that increasingly we'll see kind of personal light monitoring devices, similar to the kind of things that many of us wear on our wrists now that track other mm. aspects of our health. They're, it's like a, those... a dosimeter for light almost, isn't it? Tim, we're going to have to leave it because we're talking about time. We're talking about light. We've run out of time on this occasion. But thank you very much for joining us. That's Tim Brown from the University of Manchester. Much has changed for business owners, managers and staff recently. But with over 30 years' experience in telecommunications, award-winning independent company Spitfire have the expertise to make sure you stay ahead and can keep on innovating. Whether it's connectivity, MPLS networks, firewalls or phone systems, Spitfire can help. To find out more, go to spitfire.co.uk. That's spitfire.co.uk. Spitfire, telecoms and IP engineering solutions for business since 1988. Music in the programme is sponsored by Epidemic Sound. Perfect music for audio and video productions. You're with your favourite science show, that's The Naked Scientist, and I'm Chris Smith. And in this half hour... The gas and electricity price surge is alarming consumers across Europe. Wholesale prices are soaring. I am very, very worried, very concerned. You know, it's almost apocalyptic with how bad it could get. We've long been concerned about Russia using energy as a tool of coercion. The conflict in Ukraine and the sanctions on Russia have led to another surge in the cost of oil and gas. Could have devastating economic consequences here in the UK. Well, even before Russia invaded Ukraine, driven by supply shortages and pursuit of a green agenda across multiple geographies, many countries were already facing an energy crisis. Fuel prices at the pumps are now at eye-watering levels that we've never seen the like of before. And some people have seen their power bills double in just a matter of months. Now, one consequence of this energy deficit is renewed interest in nuclear power, which, under the circumstances, is looking very attractive as an option, as energy consultant Jeremy Gordon, who runs the nuclear advocacy initiative Fluent in Energy, explains. So one of the major selling points of nuclear power through its whole history has been energy security. So that is the ability of a country to control its own energy supply and not to be reliant on imports. This issue around Ukraine, around uh, importing so much gas from Russia, has brought that to the fore. 
So now we've got sort of the climate change need to decarbonize our power supply, which nuclear also supports because it's low carbon, and also energy security, which nuclear supports. So we've got those two policy areas are reinforcing to make the case for nuclear at the moment. Jeremy Gordon. The form of nuclear power plants that we're discussing rely on what's called fission energy. This is a process in which atoms of radioactive elements like uranium get split apart to release energy. It's a technology that historically played a big part in our energy provision, but for various reasons it's dwindled in more recent years. Well, now there's, of course, a case for a comeback, as Evelina Wang heard from Cambridge University Judge Business School's Simon Taylor. The UK was one of the pioneers in nuclear power and uh, nuclear power has made quite a significant contribution to UK electricity generation over many decades. Uh, it's still around 15% of the uh, power that we we produce, but it's now shrinking uh, or about to shrink quite rapidly because on current plans, uh, all but one of the older stations will close by the end of this decade. So unless we build new nuclear stations, the nuclear share will shrink. And the problem has been that uh, new nuclear has proved uh, economically very troublesome, both in the United States and in continental Europe. Why is it so challenging to get a new station built? Nuclear power plants are exceptionally complex structures. The underlying argument for nuclear is that you get a great deal of energy from a very small quantity of uranium. The problem is that process generates a great deal of radiation, which is dangerous, So you have to build protective structures around it. You also have to build in various backup systems to make sure that in the event of uh, an accident or a loss of power, the plant can shut down safely. And that essentially makes for a very complex uh, structure, which in turn is very complicated to build. The good news is that there is learning by doing in nuclear, um, at least to some extent. So there is a sense of benefit in building more of these stations because you get better and better at doing it and the costs will progressively come, come down. I mean, how much lower is, 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 remains to be seen. So there, there is some evidence that things are getting better, but investors are obviously sceptical about this until it's actually happened. And that's where the government has to take some of the risk. I see, yeah. Uh, if if they were to build new plants, then where would these be located? Well, the uh, the government did a siting survey quite some time ago and identified several sites which are all, almost all, existing sites where there are uh, nuclear power stations of the first or second generation, some of which have now closed. And these are all sites that have both the, the physical characteristics, which amongst other things is that they need to be reasonably far from urban areas and they need to be on the coast because you need a lot of water for cooling but they also have the grid connection Uh, it's already there which means you don't have to add a great deal of extra investment and they also have for the most part local support because nuclear power stations employ quite a lot of people very well-paid jobs they generate additional economic activity in what are typically rural areas where there isn't a lot of alternative employment i see Just as a projection into the future, do you think we can count on nuclear technology as part of a clean energy future? The the main case for nuclear is that it is a proven source of uh, reliable and predictable uh, low or zero carbon electricity. The value of having predictable and uh, reliable uh, electricity supply, particularly in the winter, is quite high. So I think there's a pretty good case for the UK Um, to have at least some nuclear as part of the mix, as long as it's not outrageously expensive. And as I say, the evidence is that it's getting better. I mean, clearly, you know, what's been going on recently in Ukraine, one message that's come through is that being dependent on imported energy is a risk. So I would expect this to reinforce the case for nuclear in the UK and possibly other countries as well energy infrastructure economist Simon Taylor. Now, admittedly, uranium does need to be imported for nuclear power. But as Simon Taylor was just saying, unlike fossil fuels with a big carbon footprint, also a tiny amount of uranium packs a huge energy punch. A sugar cube sized lump of the stuff contains as much energy as a tonne of coal. But 
The costs of constructing new nuclear energy plants run to billions, and this is partly because they're bespoke builds and few in number, which limits the opportunity to benefit from what are called economies of scale. If you do something a lot, you can save money in the long run. Well, that's where Rolls-Royce company Rolls-Royce SMR come in. SMR stands for Small Modular Reactors. Their vision is for a fleet of nuclear reactors, but on a much smaller scale and made on a production line, achieving those economies of scale and keeping costs down. Within the last week or two, they've just submitted their proposal to a slew of industry regulators for appraisal. Mark Salisbury heads the company's regulatory assessment team. Are you effectively doing, Mark, what IKEA does for furniture, for nuclear power then? Flat pack nuclear. <laughs> Good evening, Chris. Well, I think our customers might feel a little uh, hard done by if we gave them the instructions and, and ask them to assemble it themselves. But but in essence, that's what we're looking to do is maintain that high quality product that we can roll out at a fast pace to help the country meet net zero, but still maintaining safety as, as our utmost priority. When we say these are small reactors, how small is small? What could you power with one of these? Physically in size for one of our SMRs, you're looking about uh, the site would be about the size of two football pitches. And that would provide enough electricity for about a million people over its 60 year lifetime. And if one compares two football pitches for one of your units compared with say, one of the current fleet of nuclear stations we have in the country at the moment. How do they compare size-wise? Again, on the physical size-wise, you're probably looking about uh, roughly about five times the size, but the electrical output is much higher. So you'd probably be looking about three to four million homes. And it's not so much that one is better than the other. We're going to need a mixture of everything to help us um, meet our net zero goals. But it's finding the right um, technology for the right situation and uh, using them all together to uh, achieve net zero. Where will you put them then? So we're looking at a number of sites. The first ones that, um, that that are readily deployable will be on sites or next to sites with an existing nuclear power station. For the same reason that your, your previous interviewee um, mentioned about where we site nuclear power plants, places where people are used to them, we have the grid infrastructure and they have the kind of uh, geology, geography and, and makeup that we're looking for. As we sort of move out and hopefully expand the fleet of of plants that we're looking to construct and that others are looking to construct, we'll need to look at other sites. Um, So we'll be looking for sites that are close by to uh, areas of of high energy demand, but have similar characteristics to, um, to sites that we see at the moment that have got existing nuclear plants on them. And are these pretty much the same technology we already have, or are these a brand new way of harnessing nuclear energy? They're a bit of both, really. So the technology that they're based on is called a pressurised water reactor. And those have been in operation globally since 1957. So it's a very well understood, very well refined, very mature technology that's been improved and and optimised over the decades. The way that we're different is that we're shrinking that down and we're creating a product line. So we will have factories that we'll be able to ship to sites and then install uh, within a factory on the site itself. So that will drastically speed up construction time and reduce costs. We lost a little bit of you there, Mark, but I think we got the gist that basically you've got a slew of factories around the place that are, that are making the parts. Where will those parts be sourced? And is this something that you can set up to make it sustainable? Will it be locally produced or are we going to be buying bits from other countries and we're just basically trading our energy problem of imports to uh, as importing parts problem from other countries? That's a really good question. And some of the parts we will have to import. But what we're looking to do at Rolls-Royce is also by shrinking the size of the technology, we're able to increase the market size for supply chain in the UK. So we're looking to build factories in the UK to build these plants. We're looking to create with a fleet of reactors about 40,000 jobs by 2050. And we estimate that will generate about £52 billion in economic benefit. So we're very much looking to grow both our nuclear generating capacity in the UK, but also our manufacturing capability, because you're quite right. Otherwise, we could end up trading one problem for another. People are still wary about nuclear. How safe are these and what safeguards are being put in place to make sure that people can sleep easy? 
So nuclear plants are incredibly safe. From a, a security and a safety perspective, plants, we use um, a multi-layered system of defences um, or multiple barriers, if you like, to, to help safety. Um, and each of those has a redundant or a diverse means of achieving the same aim. So if we need power to a site, uh, we might have off-site power, we might have diesel generators, we might have batteries, as an example. Increasingly so, and the same with our design of power stations, uh, nuclear plants rely on what's called passive safety. So that's not necessarily requiring power or a pump to run to keep something cool. That's relying on natural forces like convection or gravity to keep a plant safe. The other thing which does concern people very much is what we do with the waste. Uh, sure, it's a good question, and I think it's important to put it in perspective, is that every process um, on Earth creates waste, and, and nuclear is no different. From over 80 years of nuclear science and technology in medicine, research, industrial purposes, energy generation and defence, um, we have generated nuclear waste in the UK, and we, will, we, we do have to deal with it. The other thing to bear in mind is the, 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 the size or the magnitude of that waste. So high-level waste, which accounts for about 95% of the radioactivity of the stockpile, if we put that all together in the UK, would cover an area only the quarter of the size of a football pitch. And if we look to deploy a large fleet programme in the UK, so about 16 gigawatts, we'd only be adding about 10% to this existing stockpile. Now, we know what to do with it. Nuclear waste is uh, normally in the form of concrete or ceramic or metallic material. And we box that up and confine it and store it. And unlike chemical wastes or, or other types of waste, radioactive waste does decay in toxicity over time. So we know what to do with it. Currently, it's stored at specific locations and uh, the government is looking uh, to build a facility to take these wastes and be able to store them whilst their uh, radioactivity decays over time. And if the regulators who are currently considering your proposals do give it the nod, what's the timeline for implementing this now? we're looking around 2030 to be able to start rolling out um, our small modular reactors and once we get the factories up and running we'll be able to roll them out um, in quick succession. Mark thank you very much indeed for bringing us up to speed that's Mark Salisbury from Rolls-Royce SMR. Right now here on The Naked Scientist, we are talking about the energy crisis and the role that nuclear power might play in getting us back on track in future. So far, we've talked about nuclear fission. This is splitting the atom in common parlance. But there is another form of nuclear power, one that boasts the potential of being almost limitless and is said to be safer and cleaner. It is nuclear fusion. And there, rather than breaking atoms apart, fusion involves pushing smaller atoms together to make bigger ones. It's the process, after all, that powers the sun, so we know it works. The challenge is trying to recreate the conditions that you find inside a star that make fusion possible here on Earth. Now, one of the places that they're trying to do that with some success now is JET, the joint European Taurus at Cullum. Evelina Wang went to take a look around. Fusion happens when two light elements fuse and they release more energy than, than what they had before. That was Fernanda Rimini, a plasma physicist and JET's senior exploitation manager. JET stands for Joint European Taurus. The shape of the reactor is included in the name. JET is a torus or a donut. This shape is essential for the research. The way we confine this very, very hot plasma, the very hot fuel that we need to produce fusion is by using magnetic fields. The plasma is made of ionized particles, so they kind of stick to the magnetic fields. The fuel, or plasma, needs to be extremely hot, over 100 million degrees Celsius, if the atoms are to gain enough energy to fuse. However, it isn't so simple. As the plasma heats up, it wants to expand outwards, it wants to collide with other matter, which in turn cools it back down. The solution is to trap it, with big magnets, forcing it to spiral around the reactor. And the researchers here at JET have had success. At the end of last year, the team set a new record for longest fusion ever recorded, five seconds. 
I was keen to get a closer look at Jet. But the first stop on my tour was the control room. You can see the glow that you can see on the screens there. That's a plasma. So we have cameras looking inside the vessel. The simple view that you get here is just to check that everything is all right and and whatever. Am Am I allowed to ask what experiments they're running now? So now they're running these sort of clean-up experiments, so low, um, fairly low power, very, very low temperature experiments. From tomorrow, we go back to running some of the higher temperature experiments, so we put in some additional heating in the, in the plasma, and then we go on with those until the end of the week. We still need to work out the optimal conditions for experimenting with plasma. As funny as it sounds... That was Jet's original purpose. It was built to study plasma. These experiments will better inform the nuclear fusion reactors of the future to allow us one day, hopefully, to smash the current record. Most of the experiments are a scan of something. So you have your basic plasma and then you change slightly the heating power, slightly the, the density of, uh, of the plasma, the, the magnetic fields. So you try to change one parameter at a time. Thanks. Yeah, <laughs> everyone looks so busy. Yes, <laughs> From the control room, it was a quick walk to the next building where the fusion reactor actually was. And this is where you need to wear uh-huh. It's going to be very noisy. Okay. Wow. Jet is behind there, behind those yellow doors. And because the machine is operating, these doors are closed. And this is the shield. There is another shield. There is a secondary shield inside. The assembly room was a huge warehouse, bustling with people moving around large boxes. And there was even a giant crane plonked in the center. Because Jet is constantly in use, I wasn't able to get my hands on the actual reactor. But I did get to see the next best thing. You can see the mock-up up there. That's the replica. It's not just a replica. Jet was Jet is built in, in sections like an orange. Uh-huh. So it's built out of eight octants. When they built it, they built nine. They built an extra one as a, as a test. And it was a full, full size, full everything. And it's that one. From where I was standing, the replica looked like a metal donut propped up by big metal scaffolding. Compared to the real reactor... The mock-up was missing all of the external wiring, thick tubing for cooling water, and giant magnets. But still, I went up the stairs and pressed my face against the window. Thank you. So this is this is the size object, and all these components represent real things. That it was about the size of four shipping containers arranged in a cube. On the inside, it was a big hollow donut. Metal plates lined the walls like scales. Curiously, inside the mock-up, there was a large, boxy-looking robot. Fernanda told me that maintenance inside the reactor is carried out by the remote-handled robot named Mascot. The replica of the reactor is used to train operators in maneuvering that robot. To get a sense of what she meant, we went into the remote handling room. So this is this is the remote handling control room. There are two... You can wow, two so manipulators. Cool. Yeah, this is one of the coolest things. Uh, Inside, there were two handles in the middle of the room, and on the walls were several big TV screens. Basically, the way there would be one person controlling it from here. So they just stand right there and use the handles. And use the handle, and the manipulator and the mascot gets into the, gets into the torus and does whatever is needed from taking tiles off, unscrewing things and then putting things on again. And the mascot has got cameras, so there is a full view of, the, of, of what the person is doing. Uh. This, you know, it is not an accident that the people who designed JET, they were all people with dual physics and engineering uh, backgrounds. So it was, it was really at the core of the design and of the exploitation ever since. The lessons and experiments done at JET informed the design of ITER, or International Thermonuclear Experimental Reactor, a new fusion reactor being built in France that is twice as big. And inevitably, robotics will play a massive part 
in that plant too, which is why this technology is a major priority at JET. And the whole project is designed around robots, as Research Facility Director Rob Buckingham explains. We are not going to be able to get people inside a fusion power plant. Mm -hmm. Certainly inside the vessel, almost certainly outside the vessel, and maybe for quite a lot of the plant. So we can't put people in. Work still needs to happen. We still need to intervene. We need to inspect, upgrade, and we'll need to maintain. Mm -hmm. And that's where the robotics comes in. And, um, you know, a fusion power plant is not a simple thing. And so, therefore, the requirements on the robotics are actually quite... um, Well, they're beyond what we can do at the moment. So how much does the design of your robotics influence then the design of a plant? A lot. Yeah. A, A lot, a lot. Yeah. It's a big challenge because we've we've got to think about this whole thing in a different way. And we are definitely part of the conversation around the table with the people who are designing the plasma and the people who are designing the heating and drive systems to come up with the best possible design. So the kind of testing that you would do here factors into the build of if you had to implement this. Yeah. So actually, behind (laughs) you is, is Mascot. So this is Mascot 6. The ones you saw over in Jet were 4.5. Don't ask me where 5 went. We don't know. We lost it. <laughs> so this is Mascot 6, and we've, we've moved to a fully digital control system. I see there's little rubber ducks. Oh, rubber ducks. <laughs> okay. Are those used for testing? <laughs> yeah, they are. Yeah, we... we uh, this seems to be our standard test kit. So they're slightly squidgy, uh, and we use them, yeah, for picking picking things up, putting things down. So one of the important things about Mascot is that the operator feels the force being put on the the remote arms. So if you think about how much a, a person uses force to do tasks, especially where they're handling and manipulating, you're not really using your eyes anywhere near as much as the sensation in your fingers. So getting that sensation into the operator's fingers is, is really important. Mm. Um, just are there other applications that you would want to or be able to translate the kind of the yeah. s- research? To? So we're trying to collaborate with as many sectors as possible. So the sectors which are most closely aligned to fusion, uh, the first one is fission decommissioning. Mm. So actually taking apart um, you know, fission reactors uh, and, um, and other systems that were built over the course of the 20th century. And then, of course, there are... Well, robotics goes into health and defence and farming and renewables, maintenance. So, you know, it'll be interesting to see what happens with, um, with wind farms as they go further and further out into the oceans. They'll have to be remotely maintained. So they'll have to be designed to be remotely maintained. Yeah. So there are big conversations uh, that are ongoing on that sort of front too. Amazing where you can find rubber ducks, isn't it? Even in a fusion power plant. Rob Buckingham there. But new technologies also often require new materials to cope with the demands that engineers are placing on them. It's a bit like the new generations of steels and casting methods that accompanied the invention of the steam engine. And in the case of nuclear fusion, the extreme operating conditions and the high energy of the plasma at the heart of the process means our present generations of materials just can't cut it. And we need to discover where they're vulnerable and how to make better ones as Andy London explains. There have been some really interesting results from JET. We're really interested there in uh, the, the impact of the plasma on the wall, and that causes a number of different processes. So it can cause erosion, where you're removing the material, but the material which can be removed is also deposited, and sometimes that's in a very similar area, so you have this kind of erosion deposition process sort of dynamically happening all the time other places there's parts of the reactor where you have lots of erosion and places where you have a lot of deposition and if we if we take a sort of cross section through the material you can actually see different layers and those almost correspond to different experiments in jets so different pulses and different conditions that were run it's almost like sectioning through a tree and looking at tree rings you can see different levels of deposition that happened with certain run parameters And there we're really trying to understand what's the influence of how we're running the reactor on the material surface's performance. 
and we're looking there at the, the chemical structure we're looking at um, the mechanical property change because that tells us about how the, the components will perform and ultimately feeding into the design of new materials that will be more resilient um, and help the reactor to run better and for longer. What's an example of a new material if I'm allowed to ask? Yeah of course uh, one of the really uh, interesting areas that we're looking at is materials that can withstand really high heat loads so Uh, you don't want your material to melt you don't want it to sputter away tungsten is one of the main materials that we've used but it has some disadvantages it's quite a brittle material Um, and we're looking at ways of basically making tungsten more ductile so instead of it bending and it cracking which is bad from an engineering perspective you don't want a component to bend and crack ideally you'd want it to bend and then just sort of change shape then you know that it's failed you don't want it to crack open because that would be very bad so we can take uh, basically the same principles of um, other areas of of engineering, so in composite materials, you can make fibre composites. And when you make materials much smaller, you can make them sort of tougher, effectively. So making tungsten fibre composite materials, so even with tungsten within tungsten in these little fibres, that makes the whole material structure much stronger, much more ductile. Now we're looking at, well, does it, when you then irradiate that with neutrons, when it has damage, when it has transmutation and it changes from one material into another, do you still get those same you know, good properties? And, and how, what happens when you expose that with a plasma? Does having these extra fibres in there mean you don't have a smooth surface? Does that mean you get more interaction with the plasma or less? And those are the kind of things that we're, we're looking at. Amazing stuff. Andy London from the Materials Research Facility at JET. So at the moment, fusion does remain a cherished dream, but it's one that we think is worth pursuing because we know it's possible. It's what keeps the sun shining after all. In the nearer term, though, a reinvigoration of existing nuclear technology, fission, looks increasingly likely as energy insecurity driven by world politics is making policymakers realise we need to shore up our generating capacity rather than rely on third parties abroad who can, let's face it, turn the gas taps off if they decide they don't like us. Well, let's finish, as we always do, with our question of the week. And this week, James Titko is breaking down this geological inquiry from listener Ranjit. As gravity and time have an inverse relationship, at some time in the future, will astronauts bring back moon rock to Earth that will be older than the Earth? Okay, I'm not going to lie. This has been a bit of a tricky one. I've been lucky, though, as I'm able to enlist the help of Professor Ruth Gregory from King's College London. While you're right to point out that gravity and time are related, it's not exactly an inverse relationship. What you're probably referring to, Ranjit, is the fact that gravitational fields affect the local passage of time, with time slowing down in a strong gravitational field, such as near a black hole. For this theory, we have Albert Einstein to thank, who abolished the Newtonian idea that we inhabit a three-dimensional universe in which time passes uniformly throughout. The effect we are discussing is known as gravitational redshift. It's an amazing example of how taking simple physical knowledge can lead to a deep result. We all know it takes work to climb a flight of stairs, and that's no different for a quantum of light called a photon. If a photon loses energy, such as when it experiences stronger gravity, it increases its wavelength. And since the red end of the spectrum of visual light is the longest, we call this phenomenon redshifting. He realised this frequency of light was like the ticking of a clock. Think of a wave. From crest to crest is the wavelength and the frequency is the number of crests passing per second. So each crest is like the tick of a clock. And a second for an observer deeper in a gravitational well would be longer than a second for someone outside the gravitational potential. This effect has been verified experimentally but the effect is so tiny for objects in our solar system, such as the Moon and the Earth. It requires the supreme precision of atomic clocks to see. For example, the difference in a clock at the Earth's surface and one at the Moon is roughly a second in a human lifetime. And even over five billion years, the difference is just a handful of years. So to answer your question, no... So, Ranjit, as I understand it, gravitational time dilation can equivalently be interpreted as gravitational redshift, during which photons losing energy and higher gravitational potential experience an increase in their wavelength, and thus a slowing down of the passage of time. The effect is so tiny in the context of the Earth and the Moon that, sadly, 
you would not expect astronauts to ever be bringing back moon rocks which look visibly any older than they would be if they had been residing here. Hope that helps. Next week, we'll be tackling this question from Malcolm. My question is, how can we identify a disease? When looking at a sample of chromosomes, what are scientists looking for to spot a diseased gene? And if you have a question you'd like us to answer, send it to chris at thenakedscientist.com and we'll do our best to crack it for you. That's it for this week. Next time, people buying breast milk online and not just for babies. Some of these people, would you believe, are bodybuilders. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University's Institute of Continuing Education. It's supported by Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith. Thanks for listening. And from all of us here on the team, until next time, goodbye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.